these. We're so happy you're all here. Good to see you. My name is Cindy Kickline, and today we're going to begin our exploration of 2 Corinthians. In the spring, we studied 1 Corinthians, and so now we're going to continue in Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church as we study his second letter to them. Paul is very committed to and take seriously his relationship with his fellow believers in Corinth to pray for them, to visit to them, to write to them, encourage them, exhort them. And we will see that repeatedly as we work through this book. Are you ready for the journey? Let's, let's pray. Never too much to pray, right? <laughs> Jesus, you are so, so good to us. Thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise to transform us by it, by the power of your spirit and the power of your word. Lord, we look for that today. And as we share, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I studied this portion of scripture, I saw it help in understanding the text by reading some additional commentary. So you will hear me reference a few of them as we go along. Jeffrey Grogan, Chuck Swindoll, Paul Barnett, Colin Cruz, and my ESV study Bible. Obviously, what I have to share is not exhaustive, but thankfully, he's always willing to teach us more. Amen? So let's start. Let's look at verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of, G of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be tempting to gloss over the greeting and think, let's just get to the meat of this. But however, there is a lot here. So let's look at it carefully. It was common practice at that time to greet the recipient at the beginning of a letter, just as we may say, dear so-and-so or to whom it may concern. So let's look. Who is this addressed to? God's church in Corinth, as well as saints in the whole of Achaia. Saints, according to my ESV study Bible, means literally holy and dedicated ones, referring to the identity and way of life of all those who belong to God. The Corinthian church, as all churches, was made up of sinful people redeemed by Christ. They certainly had their struggles learning to walk as holy, dedicated Christ followers, as do we. Paul Barnett states here that Paul addresses the Corinthians as the church of God, as God's holy people, and teaches and exhorts them to behave as if they were. According to Colin Cruz, the addressees are described as the church of God that is in Corinth, an indication that the church is not just a social organization, but is God's possession in which he himself is pleased to be present. Now let's back up and look at how Paul begins. Who is the letter from? It's from Paul and Timothy, who often traveled with Paul and worked together with him in ministry. Paul describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. My first thought was, so what is an apostle? An apostle. According to Jeffrey Grogan, apostles were persons sent on a mission by the authority of another, in this case, Christ. 
Paul, we see, was commissioned by Christ in his Damascus Road experience. Paul at that time was still called Saul and was on his own mission, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. As we read about Saul in Acts 9, verses 3 through 6, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Acts 9 then introduces us to Ananias, a disciple of Christ. The Lord gives him a mission to go look for Saul and lay hands on him to receive his sight. Ananias questions the Lord and rehearses the evil that Saul has done. I cannot imagine the fear in Ananias's heart as he heard what the Lord wanted him to do, knowing Saul's history in persecuting the church. And I would have thought, surely I have heard wrong. This is not what God wants me to do. But verses 15 through 16 in Acts 9 say, But the Lord said to, to him, Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here we see Saul is being called by Jesus and transformed by him. He will be renamed Paul, changed from going his own way and being commissioned to make an about face and follow the Lord in a completely opposite direction. He would no longer follow his own lead, but was committed to seeking and following God's lead for his life, even unto death. According to Colin Cruz, Paul's commission to be Christ's emissary was backed by the will of God the Father. Paul needed to emphasize his authority at the beginning of this letter because it had been called into question at Corinth. We will see Paul defending his apostleship and his calling from the Lord frequently as he shares with the Corinthians. We're only one verse into the text and already I see a challenge for our own lives. Do I do what I do by the will of God? Do I make up my own plans or do I seek the Lord for his plans for me year by year, day by day, moment by moment? He has given us his spirit when we come to Christ for salvation, and he promises to guide and direct us. Do I allow him to guide me? And when he does, am I obedient to his direction, personally as well as in ministry? Good questions for us to ponder prayerfully. Okay, so we know the letter is written by Paul, who Jesus called to speak for him, and he's writing to saints of God. He then blesses them as he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is a common greeting from Paul to the churches. We receive grace through Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. We no longer need to wrestle against God, but can have peace with him. And Jesus' father 
becomes our father. I found this next quote very interesting. According to Colin Cruz, God was previously known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We remember that a lot through the Old Testament, right? But now he's described as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're teaching the children in kids' church the Lord's Prayer, he's now our father because we belong to Christ. Let's go back to the text, verses three through seven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, so that we may, okay, lost my space, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We see here that our Father God is the Father of mercies and all comfort. I looked up mercy according to Webster. Listen very carefully to this. Who does it sound like? Mercy, according to Webster, is compassion and forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm and a mission performed out of a desire to relieve suffering motivated by compassion. That's our God, ladies. Do you see how amazing he is? He is holy and he has the power and the right to punish us for our sins. But God instead chose to reach out to us in compassion. He sent us Jesus to relieve our sin suffering and offers redemption and relationship with himself. Praise God. This same God is the God of all comfort and he comforts us in our affliction. Here's the rub though, ladies. He comforts us if we let him. Have you ever had someone try to comfort you when you were hurting and you want nothing to do with them? We can choose to do that with God also. If we fight against him and refuse him and his comfort, we miss the blessing of him and we miss his comfort and we miss the next opportunity of being used by him because what does it say next? So that. If you see so that in the scriptures, and this chapter said it a lot, pay real close attention. Let's stop and be honest here. None of us likes affliction, right? Do we like affliction? We don't like sorrow, torment, pain, struggle, hurt, right? We'd much rather say, uh, no, thank you. I'll, I'll pass on that one. But as women of the word, I have to ask, did God promise us a rose garden? Does he promise us happiness? Does he promise everything will go my way? No, but he does promise in my presence is fullness of joy in Psalm 16. In Isaiah, he says he will give us beauty for the ashes. In Deuteronomy, he tells us, I will never 
leave you or forsake you. In Romans, he tells us all things he will work together for good to those that love him. And in Isaiah 43, it says, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. Not if, when. I wish we had time for y'all to share all of your favorite promises from the Lord, because we could go on and on and on, right? Because the Bible is full of his faithfulness to all generations. No, suffering is not pleasant or desirable, but when it happens, as it does and will in this sinful, broken world, we have the hope, we have the promise that our God will comfort us in it. He wastes nothing and he will use it to refine us so that, back to the text, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what does God's comfort look like? Colin Cruz points out that comfort can take the form of either deliverance out of affliction or encouragement in the midst of affliction, which enables us, enables one to endure. Paul indicated one positive outcome of the endurance of affliction was the ability to comfort others who are in affliction. When we go through a difficulty and experience God with us through it, we can identify with others who are experiencing that, such as, think of some of those things, difficult days in raising a family, right? We were doing some of that sharing this morning. Different stages of parenthood, our parents getting older, loss of a loved one, labor and childbirth, or childlessness loss of employment or adjustment to a new school or a new neighborhood or a new job. We can give hope to others when we share how he got us through, whether we struggled in our faith through that journey or not. We can encourage them that the Lord will get them through too. Why? Because we have found him faithful to us and he will be faithful to them. Back to the text, verses eight through 11. Paul shares his own struggle here with life's afflictions, even despairing of his life. Verse eight, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, for the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even if we despair even of our lives at times. Here it appears Paul did exactly that. But when we come to the end of ourselves, we realize he is our only hope. He, Jesus, is the answer. The text says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Did you notice that? 
He did deliver us. He will deliver us and he will deliver us again. Difficulty has happened, will happen, and will happen again. Pastor Tim tells us you're either in a trial, you just came out of one, or you're going into one. That's part of our life here. But through it all, we can set our hope as Paul did on Jesus. You know the old hymn, through it all, sing it with me. Through it all, through it all, what? I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. His presence and his word promises to be with us through it all. Seeing and experiencing God's presence and helping hand in the past gives us hope that he will faithfully reveal himself to us again in the future. Colin Cruz states that through the sufferings endured, God teaches them to rely not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Such reliance learned from such reliance is learned more in the midst of affliction than when things are going well. We'd rather it not be that way, though, right? In the next verse, Paul asked the Corinthians for their help. What must they and we do? Verse 11 says, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We must be praying for one another, uplifting one another to the Lord. We'll be doing that again later today in our small groups. Sometimes we just do not have the words or the faith or the energy to even pray. And we need to be in relationship with other believers so they can lift us up to the throne of grace. And at other times, we're the ones doing the praying and the lifting. Even Jesus, our example for life in the Garden of Gethsemane, heading for the cross, asked his disciples to pray for him. Our prayers for one another connect us to him and to one another. We get to participate with him and experience his power because we have none on our own. And why do we do this? Another so that many will give thanks. The glory goes back to the Lord. And that's our goal in all of life, right? To bring glory to him. Verse 12 says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. I have to be honest, when I first saw Paul mentioning boast, it made me a little uncomfortable because in 1 Corinthians 1.31, we learn from Paul that anyone who boasts should boast in the Lord. But Colin Cruz explains it this way. Essentially, to boast means to take pride in something or someone. And in Paul's writings, it's used both negatively and positively. Used negatively it refers to an unwanted pride in one's own merits, but used positively, it denotes legitimate pride based on what God has done and enabled one to do. 
In the above quote, Paul is again defending his integrity, which is called into question repeatedly in his dealings with the Corinthians. But Paul's boast, what he is relying on, is that they behaved in godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but the grace of God. According to Chuck Swindoll, no other church in the New Testament caused Paul as much grief or took as much of his time and energy. Swindoll very much encourages integrity in ministry, but he also shares that even when we are exhibiting integrity, that there are three false assertions from others that can affect us in our ministry. False assertions made against our conduct, things we did not do, against our words, things we did not say, and against our motives, things we did not mean. In 2 Corinthians 1, we see Paul himself received all three kinds of attacks from the false teachers lurking in the shadows of the Corinthian church, feeding false information to the confused members of that church. And according to Paul Barnett, Paul now writes with the intention that the Corinthians will come to understand fully their questioning of his motives is ill-based. When the great and coming day arrives and everything is revealed, Paul is confident they will boast of him. Boasting of achievement was common among the Gentiles and Jews, but Paul's boasting actually reflects his humility before the Lord because his boasting is in the Lord, not himself. Paul uses their style, but here boasts in his own weakness, but in the strength of the Lord and God's grace. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul so wanted and intended to visit Corinth again, but life happened and unavoidable changes in his travel plans occurred. Accusations were made regarding his sincerity and not really meaning what he said. He defends his position that he does not vacillate, does not make his decisions according to the flesh, and he doesn't say yes and no at the same time. He is saying that his word to them is faithful, and he even compares it to God's word that is faithful and true. Chuck Swindoll states, though the promises of God were set in stone and irrevocable, the Corinthians should have held Paul's own hoped-for plans as tentative, subject entirely to the will of God. Instead, they had misunderstood his intention as a promise, an error that opened the door to the unfounded charge of fickle vacillation. We see that Paul points back to his example, the one he lives for and takes his orders from. 
Jesus Christ. He reminds them that all the promises of God find their fulfillment. Yes, their yes in Christ. Paul also reminds them that God is the one who has established Sylvanius, Timothy, and Paul with the Corinthians in Christ. And he has anointed them, put his seal on them, given his spirit as a guarantee, just as he's done with us in Christ Jesus. I think one of my new favorite verses is Ephesians 2.10, which tells us, for we are his workmanship. You are his workmanship, ladies. You are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for all of you to walk in them. He has good things for us to do, just as he did for Paul. And Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Back to the last two verses. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. In, two, in these two verses, Swindoll explains that Paul moves from clarifying that his plans were not the same as God's purposes and promises to a brief explanation of why he did not travel to Corinth as originally hoped. Because of the turmoil in Corinth, Paul had written 1 Corinthians, and there were still pockets of resistance. He wanted to wait until that matter was resolved and the church was restored to love, joy, and peace. His words were those of a loving shepherd and not an angry, self-serving tyrant. Paul says he and his helpers are working for the faith and joy of the Corinthians. He loves them and is a loving servant to them for the Lord. As we ponder this chapter of scripture, what may be some things to consider moving forward? Paul was involved in Christian ministry. As followers of Christ, we are as well. As we look at Paul's example, he worked for integrity. He defended his integrity because he did all according to God's will for the glory of the Lord. Do I do all according to his will and for his glory? Do we? Some questions from Swindoll to think about. What are we doing here? What should we be doing here? And where should we be ministering? According to Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that brings the truth of the word to our hearts. Lord, as, as we continue to pray together and look into your word, we just ask that your spirit would do its mighty work in our heart to transform our hearts to become more and more like Jesus. And we will be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.